Once again, we're back in Ephesians 6, talking about spiritual warfare. So we're looking at Ephesians 6, verse 10, and we'll start reading. And Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So we're honing in today on the latter part of verse 17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And all the other pieces of armor that we've looked at so far have been defensive. So the belt kind of holds everything together. The breastplate, we said, protects the heart and other vital areas. The helmet covers our mind. The shoes protect our feet. And the shield just gives us an overall cover or protection. And all these pieces do, though, is they just keep us from being mortally wounded. They aren't offensive weapons. They deal no blows to the devil. They just keep his attacks from taking us down. It's kind of like when you're watching a football game and they get down to the last few seconds. And the offense, what they do is they just kind of form a circle around a quarterback and he kneels down. All they're doing is protecting the quarterback. They're not going to score. They can't do that the whole game. They'd never win. They'd never conquer. So are we merely, as Christians, just to keep ourselves from being conquered? Are we not to conquer so we sing that song, I've got my shield, I've got my sword, I've got the word of faith. And what do we say there with that shield and that sword? We're marching where? We're marching on into Canaan's land with our shield and our sword, right? To conquer. That's what that song's all about. But here's the deal. A lot of people, a lot of Christians are like Neville Chamberlain of England. So he thought by ignoring Hitler's aggressive arming of Germany and by signing peace treaties that somehow England could just avoid war. Maybe just look the other way and he'll go away is what they thought might happen with Hitler. Maybe England wouldn't have to fight. They wouldn't have to pull out their sword again in battle. They'd just been through that First World War. And so their hope was that they could win by compromise, by debate, by talk. But Hitler had aggression on his mind and it wasn't going to go away. And that smile of his when he signed that peace treaty, that just covered a cold, steely heart of evil aggressiveness. There is no compromise with an enemy like that. And that's the way it is with our enemy, Satan. We cannot compromise with him and have a false peace because that'll just destroy us. We have to take not just a defensive stand, but we have to take the offense against him and his forces. 
And so you're somebody out there, you're like, man, I just don't like all this talk about fighting and war. I'm just a peace-loving soul, and I'm kind of laid back. That's what you get in Kentucky. You've got to change that kind of thinking, or you will be laid back, all right, six feet in a spiritual grave. So we've got a war going on, and we are forced to fight if we're Christians. We're wrestling. You do that in close quarters, and this battle is going to be on close quarters, face-to-face, toe-to-toe with the devil. That is how we're going to be fighting. And we're not going to get away from a fight spiritually because the Bible says the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent will take it by force. You want to make it in? You're going to have to take it by force. And we have an offensive weapon to do that. So there's no other way in. We've got to be offensive. We've got to fight. We've got to conquer. And we're warned of that. We're told that. It is by much tribulation that we are going to enter in the kingdom of heaven. And we have to resist our enemy and not just put up with him. And so what does it say in James? Resist the devil. And then what will happen? You don't want to have to be wrestling with him every minute of your life. You don't want to have to be wrestling with sexual temptation every minute of your Christian life for 25 years, do you? No, you resist him, and you get the victory, and it says he will flee. Actively, we've got to oppose him, resist. When they had the French resistance, when Germany took over their country, they weren't just sitting back and just talking words, were they? No, they were blowing up things, shooting them. Resistance means there's an active attack going on against the enemy. And it says if we do that, when we hit him with that sword, it really does hurt the devil. Because that word flee is the Greek words of its means to seek safety in flight. You stick him with that sword of the spirit and he's going to be on the run because it hurts him. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He says, we must not shrink back from the devil in a craven sense of fear. We must be confident in our ability to resist him. We have to know God has given us a weapon that will work. We've got to be confident in our sword that we have. And so we have to know when we thrust that sword into the devil, it will do him damage. That's what causes him to flee. And so because that's a fact, that we got a war we're in, we have to resist for him to flee, then we all need a sword. It's not optional, even for the timid. So we're non-resistant in our teaching And the Bible is against flesh and blood. But with the forces of darkness, we had better use the one weapon that God has provided for attacking our foe. The sword of the Spirit. Take it up, he says, which is the word of God. It fits every hand. There's a sword, it'll fit every hand. Whether you're a boy or a girl, whether you're young or old, cultured or uncultured, brilliant or simple-minded, there's a sword that will fit your hand. And so you're in here and you're 10 years old. Listen up, you're 10 years old. You've prayed this prayer with your mom and dad and you say you're saved. You better find your sword because the devil's after you. If you're a 10-year-old Christian, just like he is the 70-year-old Christian and everyone in between, he doesn't give up. He's after all of us. And learning how to use that sword, little 10-year-old, learning your Bible. You can start reading at 10 because you're under attack. Believe it, you are really are. 
And that word Paul uses here for sword in Ephesians 6 is makaira. And they had a big long sword. That's not what he's talking about there. It's about a 20 to 24 inch sword that he used. It was like a sword or a dagger. And every Roman soldier carried one so that when they got in close contact, they couldn't be wielding this big sword. They didn't have enough room. They had this smaller sword that they could stick. And they were good. They would practice it jabbing people in the neck and in the side to kill them. Used for close combat. And Paul's saying that is the type of sword we need when we're wrestling face to face with the enemy, with the devil, one that is easy to handle. Not one a real metal, but a sword that's spiritual in origin, right? Because we're not fighting flesh and blood, but spirits, spiritual forces. So let me ask you, what is the sword? When it says the sword of the spirit, does it mean our sword is a spirit sword? <laughs> Are we waving around the Holy Spirit? Like one of those things you see in one of those uh, occult movies, you know, we got a beam coming out, you know, a beam spirit coming out. Is that what Paul means? Sword of the Spirit? I think he means that the origin and empowerment of our sword is the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying because the sword is what? The sword is the Word of God. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is... The word of God, it says at the end of verse 17. The sword is the scriptures, the written word of God. But when Paul says the sword is of the spirit, he's talking about what? He's talking about its origin. So the Bible will say Simon, son of Jonah. And so what he's saying is the origin of Simon was Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. So the sword of the spirit, the origin of our sword is the spirit. And we talked about this when we talked about the belt of truth. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, but it really doesn't say that. It says, all scripture is God-breathed. The breath of God has given us all scripture, which is the Holy Spirit. And 2 Peter 1 says this, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So we know this word we have, God used many men with many backgrounds, different backgrounds to give us the scriptures, but they all had one thing in common. They were influenced and moved and carried on as they wrote by the Holy Spirit, as they yielded to him so that we know that every word in the Bible is from the Holy Spirit of God, from God himself. And we know that we can trust every word. We can trust that it's true because it is spirit-breathed. And he is called what in the Bible? The spirit of truth. And Jesus says, thy word is truth. And this word right here, it's been tried in many battles. And it's been proven. And it's been proven to be true and pure. Psalm 18 says this. David wrote, the Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. For by you, I can run against a troop. By my God, I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. And he writes this, the word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. Psalm 12 says, the words of the Lord are pure words. We sing this song. Like silver tried in a furnace of the earth, purified seven times. Get that picture. A pure word. It's been proven. It's been tried. Something we can trust. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. And what will it do? Converting the soul. 
It's pure. It's tried. It's perfect. Psalm 119, 140. Your word is very pure, David wrote. Therefore, your servant loves it. We should love the fact that the word's pure and that we can trust in it and that it's been proven. In Proverbs 30, it says this, every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. And he goes on to write, do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So we know by that the Bible is true, tried, perfect, and pure. And why? All because of its source. The Holy Spirit, God himself, that's how it can make those claims about itself. This is our sword right here, the words in this book. And the Holy Spirit has carefully manufactured our sword. He is the one who is the CEO of our 66-book sword factory. And he chose the steel, the spiritual steel, the material that our sword's made of, right? The written word of God. He's chosen every word. That's what our sword's made out of, the scriptures. And here's what we can also take confidence in. That sword we have, this Bible, the words we quote when we speak to a situation, a temptation, the devil's coming after us, that sword will never break. It's not made out of cheap wood. It's pure. It's solid gold. And you know how I know that? The Lord Jesus Christ said, the scripture cannot be broken. That's what he said. And that word for broken means destroyed. It can never be destroyed. It will always hold up. Never break under pressure. But not only does the Holy Spirit give us this word, produce the spiritual steel of our sword, he also does what? He hones the edges of our sword to a razor-sharp edge. And how does he do that? How is our sword razor-sharp? By his presence and in power in the word. His presence and power in the word, that's what gives it its edge. Because, listen... If the Holy Spirit's anointing is not on anyone speaking God's word, you know what it is? It's just a dull blade. It isn't going to penetrate a heart. It isn't going to wound the devil and send him running. It's not going to drive him away. It's useless without that edge on there. Right? It's just the dead letter. It's not going to kill anybody. So for our sword to be of the Spirit, it's got to be empowered by the Spirit. Whenever you speak a word to somebody, whether it's in evangelism or a brother and sister or to the devil, it's got to be Spirit-empowered. It's critical that it's that. So that's the only sword, the Word of God, that the Spirit will empower, the Holy Scripture. So he doesn't empower philosophy, medical science, a sword of psychology, political speeches, or ideas that seem are pragmatic, that seem like they ought to work. It's the Word of God is the only sword that the Spirit lives in and empowers. But when He does empower the Word, there is nothing, no situation that it can't penetrate. So we know this verse, Hebrews 4.12, for the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Can penetrate anything. Charles Spurgeon said this. He says, after a long practice in sin, a man may have coated himself as with armor impenetrable. So a person that is long in sin, it may seem like he's got a hard heart, a calloused heart, that nothing can penetrate. But he went on to write this. Yet, 
The Word of God will divide the best steel. You can have the best coating over your heart of sin. And he says the Word of God will penetrate the best steel. And I liked what he said next. The Holy Spirit can make a man feel the divine power of the sacred Word in the very center of his being. That's what the Holy Spirit does to the Word of God when it's empowered. So you want to see a loved one come to conviction and repentance? It only comes as the Word of God penetrates the heart through the power of the Spirit. So pray for them, whether you can share the Word or someone else does, that that is the way that the Word comes to them. You want to bring comfort to a brother or sister that's struggling? That's only going to happen as the Word comes alive by the Holy Spirit as you speak it. So anytime we're sharing the word with anybody, we should be praying about that, that God will anoint what we have to say. Whether it's encouragement, whether you're speaking to the devil, whether you're speaking in evangelism to someone. So it's only the word that the Spirit blesses and anoint. Look at Peter. Let's think about Peter for a minute, okay? So Jesus was arrested and he denied the Lord. And the words of his denial and cursing of the Lord in the garden, that high priest garden, they weren't anointed. There was no anointing on those words. But then something happened to him. Jesus prayed for him. Peter repented. He was restored. He gathered with the 120 in the upper room. And what happened? The Holy Spirit fell on them. He was baptized in the Holy Spirit. That power came in his soul. He spoke in tongues. The anointing was now on him. If you go on and read Acts chapter 2, empowered by the Spirit, he goes out and spoke to the crowd. And what he spoke to the crowd was he didn't speak to them about how he felt about them. He didn't give them an emotional appeal. He didn't present empty flattery. If you read Acts chapter 2, what did he preach anointed by the Spirit? This is real evangelism. He preached scriptures. He preached Joel chapter 2. This is what you're seeing. No, we're not drunk. This is the promised spirit that has come on us. This is what was prophesied by Joel. He preached Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. He preached scriptures showing that this outpouring was prophesied in Joel 2 and the lordship of Jesus Christ through those psalms. That's what he preached. So God anointed through the Holy Spirit, through scriptures he preached, and he showed them that these people had crucified the Lord of glory with wicked hands. And yet, through the scriptures, he shows God had raised him up. Talked about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what was the result of that? Preaching. Anointed preaching of his word. Here's what it says. It pierced the heart of thousands. And it says, now when they heard this, Peter's words of the Spirit, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were pierced by the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, the living Word of God. It brought deep conviction to thousands on that day. Cut their hearts open supernaturally. Said they were cut to the heart. As Spurgeon said, like he said, they felt the divine power of the sacred word in the very center of their beings. And I'm saying that is New Testament evangelism. So years back, there was a revival that took place down south. A lot of people heard about it, all right? Supposedly, they're laying hands on people's heads. People are being slain in the spirit. People are being saved. And so this guy who gave me a stack of tapes like that of the preaching that was taking place 
during these services. This great revival is supposed to be taking place. People getting saved. And so I listened to that preaching. This is what preceded all the dramatics that were going on, all these people coming to the Lord. And the one thing that struck me was there was very little and almost no scripture quoted at all by the preacher. No Bible. And that struck me because I'm like, that is totally contrary to every other revival that I have ever read or heard about. Because every other major revival that was a true move of God, that sinners were truly brought to the Lord, the dominant feature was the Word of God and the presence of the Spirit, both. Not an either or. And the fact that there is no scripture being quoted at all, no word being preached, I'm thinking, what is bringing the conviction on these people? Is this true conviction? So Paul wrote this. We go back to, we find our truth from the Bible. He wrote this to the church in Thessalonica. He said, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. And he went on to say, and you became followers of us and of the Lord. He said, having received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And what's my point in all that? He said the, the gospel didn't come in word only, but it did come through the word, just not the word only. It had to be saying it came through both, not the word only, but the word and the spirit. Both had to be there. And he's saying they came to know the Lord through the word, having received the word. They became followers of the Lord. So that has to be there in true gospel evangelism. You've got an anointing on you, those of you that are going to go out into these places and preach the word and deal with people. You need to pray. You need to fast. You need to have the Spirit of God on you, and then you need to know the word, know how to deal with people in their situations, and speak forth those words of life. But it's got to be this. This is what's got to be there. And God the Holy Spirit will anoint that, and that is what is going to reach hearts. Only that. And God will bless that. So not only do we need the Holy Spirit to empower the Word, but we also need Him to help us to understand the Word and how to apply it in every situation. So when it says the sword of the Spirit, I think this is part of it too, which is the Word of God. We need to have Him give us understanding. Because listen, whether you realize it or not, you can read words in English and think you know, but only the Holy Spirit can help us to properly understand the Word and how to apply it to the different situations we come across. 1 Corinthians 2 says this, Now we have received, but the Spirit who is from God. And here's why. That we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. So the only way we truly understand that Word is has to be a revelation from God. When Peter made that confession, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't give that to you. But my Father had to be revealed to Peter through the Holy Spirit. That's the only way we understand. John 14, 26, Jesus says, but the Helper will teach you all things. So the one who inspired these words, we talked about that, is the very one that can teach you what they mean. He's the only one. He's our only true teacher. Because even a person standing up here like me teaching you, it's only effective by the Holy Spirit opening your understanding, anointing the words that are said. Otherwise, it's just the letter. And the letter kills. And the letter puts people to sleep. I don't see anybody sleeping. I guess I'm doing all right. 
But not only does he have to give us understanding, the Holy Spirit also needs to train us and instruct us in how to use that word, how to use that sword. We need instruction, especially new Christians and a lot of older Christians, right? So, you know, they get those Muslim recruits. You see those young men and you watch those video clips on the news. What are they doing to those guys? They are putting them in intensive training, jumping over stuff, all of what they do, teaching them how to use the weapons and the warfare. And that's what needs to happen to us. We need to be trained in warfare. We need to be trained like those Roman soldiers were on how to stick that dagger. And our trainer, our instructor is the Holy Spirit. David said this, blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. So you know what? The Holy Spirit will teach us. He will teach us how to speak a word in season. Don't you want to do that? Man, I'm constantly praying, God, please. I know I'm going to talk to this person. Go into prison. Just please give me wisdom. Open my ears so I can know what to say. And that's what God promises to do for us. So put something there and turn back to Isaiah 50. He'll teach us how to speak a word in every situation. Isaiah 50, verse 4, it says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. Don't we all want that? He waketh morning by morning. He waketh mine ear to hear as the learned. Verse 5, The Lord God has opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned I away back. Here's the point. The Holy Spirit, God, He will give us the tongue of the learned, but what do we have to do? What is that telling us there? We have to spend time with Him every day, don't we? We've got to be in that Word every day. And then He's got our ear, and He'll open it up. Haven't you had that happen? So a lot of people have been coming up getting these daily Bible readings. If you're in just reading what is on that sheet, how many times I'm wondering about something, not sure how to deal with something, and all of a sudden, there it is right there. And my ears open, I understand. But if I wasn't in the Word, guess what I wouldn't have gotten? That understanding. I wouldn't have gotten that Word and how to deal with that situation. I wouldn't have gotten, a lot of times, that very thing I read will be the very thing I need to say to somebody later in my day. And it wouldn't have been there if I hadn't read that. And that's the thing I'm trying to say. He can't train us to be in that Word if we don't spend much time in the Word. If we don't read our Bibles, we don't study our Bibles, if we don't read it all the way through even on a regular basis, all of us should do that. I would suggest you read the whole Bible. I would suggest you take times where you just read a book. Sit down and just read through a book. And then just take some time to think about what was he saying there in chapter 1? What was the flow of thought? What's the point he's trying to make? That's how God will teach you. You don't have to go to a seminary to do that for the Lord to show you in, in the Word. And take some Bible characters and study them. Read about David. Think about the life of David. That's easy reading. That's like reading a good book. But look how God dealt with him in his life. And ask questions of the things you read. And then find answers. But listen, this book should be our life, should it not? Man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so if we want to be expert swordsmen, which I think would be a good idea in these last days, right? 
We've got to have a detailed knowledge of the Word. And that's more than you're ever going to get by coming and hearing. If we taught every night of the week, there's no substitute for being in that Bible ourselves and knowing that Bible. Let me just take one thing. If the baptism of the Holy Spirit is what gives us power in our lives and power over sin and opens up this Bible to where we can understand it and we see what it's done for us, let's just take that one topic. I would say then, if you're around other people that you meet out in the community, like Paul said, and you see they're struggling with sin, you can tell the person's a saved person, no doubt about that. They never heard about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And there you are. God's put you in that place. You should be able to help them. Everyone in here that's got the baptism, they should already be able to rattle off all the places that's in Acts and Luke 11 and Mark 16, back in Isaiah 28. You all should know those verses. So you can pull that sword out and help that person. For their sake, you should know that, to be able to do that. And not say, well, I got it. I, I, you know, I, I, I do it sometimes, but I, I can't tell you where it's at. You should know that. That's a basic thing. And that's a basic way we can minister to people. Because if it meant that, it means a lot to me that I received the baptism. It changed my life. I'd be dead now without the Holy Spirit. And so why wouldn't that be your default to help somebody see that if they'll receive it? Amen? But you got to get in the Bible to know that, to do that. Take the time to learn that. So look, Bible reading is not just for just a few saintly people that don't have anything else to do. You know, people are like, ah, now that you go to the seminary and you're not working, you just sit around and read the Bible all day. I got stuff to do. I'm saying I could easily get my day filled up and not touch my Bible. Believe me. But all of us are like that, right? We have got to set aside time to pray and especially to read this word and go through it systematically. So the Lord Jesus Christ, we're to follow his example and he is our example. And we see how he wielded that sword in the wilderness, in his temptation in the wilderness, right? So what happened with him? He's just filled with the Spirit, wasn't he, at his baptism? Spirit-filled, and the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness, and he comes face-to-face, like we do, with the devil. And so what was the one weapon God in the flesh used against him? He only used one weapon, and it's the same one that we're told we have right here, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. The only weapon Jesus used in fighting his arch enemy was it is written. And it's the same for us. But the only way, even though he's the Son of God, he was still man. And he had to grow in wisdom and knowledge just like we do. Now, he didn't have sin to overcome, but he didn't just automatically know the Word born into this world. He didn't just know everything in the Bible. He had to learn it. He had to sit at their feet. He had to hear it, pay attention to it. And the only way he could use that weapon is because he thoroughly knew his Bible and he had grown in wisdom and how to properly apply it to these situations that the devil's bringing up and putting him in, these temptations. He had to know that. Because here's the thing, the devil saw how effective it is written was against him. So he tried to take this sword and use it against Jesus, didn't he? misquotes Psalm 91 or misapplies it, actually takes it out of context. So what if Jesus didn't know the word that well? What did he do? He put that sword and turned it right back on him. He said, because thus it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. 
See, he had to know how to apply Scripture and had to know when it was being misapplied. And that only comes by a thorough knowledge of the Word. And he gave him one last thrust. If you go back and read that account in Matthew, one last thrust with that last temptation. And he told him, he said, away with you, Satan, is what Jesus said, for it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And it says, after that, the devil fled. The devil departed from him. Wounded, I guarantee it, wounded. And that's what James, the very same thing that we talked about earlier, that James commands every single Christian in this room to do. Resist the devil like Jesus did, and he will flee. He'll flee from us just like he fled from the Son of God. It's the same sword, and we've got the same spirit. Amen? We do, same sword. <laughs> so Jesus knew which scriptures were the right ones for each temptation. He was trained, and then he directed those scriptures at the devil. It is written. And Derek Prince wrote something that I thought was pretty interesting about that whole temptation in the wilderness, and that was that neither Jesus nor Satan questioned the authority of the Word of God. You think about that. The devil didn't question the authority of the Word of God. And we need to remember that. He doesn't respect your feelings, your opinions, your desires, but I'll tell you one thing he does respect, and that is the Word of God. So we need to attack him with what he respects. It is written, will cause him to flee and nothing else. The devil's hassling you. You got a problem in here? People say, oh, I'm being bombarded by the devil. There's only one thing that's going to get him to leave you alone. There's only one thing he understands. There's only one weapon that is effective against him. It is, it is written. There's no shortcuts to that because God's word has power. And we see Jesus using that word not only against the devil, but against the religious leaders that challenged him. Here these guys are. They're experts in the details and the minutia of the law. They knew the Bible as far as had it memorized. But what did he do? He had to use the same sword to combat them and their errors. So they complained to him about the children crying in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. Can't you hear them? They're complaining about that. And he says, yes, I hear them. He says, but have you never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? So these leaders, they're filled with spirits, challenging him, tempting him. And what did he do? He drew out his sword and he said, have you never read? Well, of course they had read. But you know what? They had never understood. <laughs> never given their ear to the Holy Spirit. So that's how you come against error like they were presenting to him. It is written out of the mouth of babes. And when they came tempting him about divorce, is it lawful for a man to get rid of his wife for any cause? Said they came tempting him. You know what he said? The same thing to them again. Haven't you read? Don't you know? And he quotes Genesis. It is written. Pulled out his sword to deal with their error. It is written. He which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and they too shall be one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. So the sword of the Spirit, the written word of God, is what silenced these men 
filled with the devil who were tempting him. So he didn't just know the word. They knew the word, but Jesus had to know how to apply that word in every situation that came his way. So that's more than just reading a few verses a day is a duty, isn't it? You've got to be reading, but you've got to be praying for God to give you understanding and how to apply that. Because you're going to have people coming your way, religious people that have twisted the word. They may be innocent. They just don't quite understand it right. They may have been taught wrong in their churches. And we need to know, well, wait a minute. What you're saying, it may seem right to you. And just take that one verse. But here, let me show you. Take this, this, and this. And you can instruct and help people that way. And keep yourself from error yourself is the point. But guess what? It takes time. It takes dedication. It takes a hunger to want to know the Word. But that should be the characteristic of everybody that is a believer. Peter wrote, as newborn babes, you should desire the sincere milk of the word that you grow thereby. If you would look at Hebrews 5, I think I just quoted it, but I'd like us to look at this in light of what we're saying. Turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Saying we have to know the word. We have to know how to apply it. And it comes through experience. And the Holy Spirit is our teacher. So Hebrews chapter 5 beginning in verse 12. He writes this, For when the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracle of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Look what he says in verse 13, For everyone that uses milk is unskillful, in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. We should be past that point, most of us in here. Verse 14, but strong meat belongs to them that are of full age. Look what it's saying here. Even those who by reason of use, you have to use that word you were reading. Put it to use, put it to practice. But when you do that, then you will have your senses exercised and then you'll have discernment. You'll discern both good and evil by hearing the word, reading the word, praying for understanding, asking the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and then going out and acting on it. That's when you're going to discern good and evil. And you won't be unskillful anymore. You'll be skillful in handling that sword. Don't we want God to do that for us? Amen. I do. I think you all do. So we're saying this is how you do it. Today's a good day to start. If you haven't been, all of us, right? All of us can do better. All of us could be better skilled with our sword. Amen? I could be a hundred times better than I am. So we'll just trust God to do that for us. So God has put a weapon in our hands, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And there's two purposes for that. To resist temptation, like Jesus in the wilderness, when the devil's coming to tempt you, you need to have that Word. You need to know the Word to say, it is written. And to stick him with it that way, right? And also for evangelism and ministry to others, we need to have that sword. To cut their chains. Take that sword, cut their chains, and free them from the evil spirits that are oppressing them. It's the only way we can really help people out. So it is written is our answer to when we are face to face with the devil in battle. And we said that sword, it's tried, true, and effective, and it was our Lord's only weapon. 
If it was his only weapon, it will be our only weapon that will work. And therefore, because of that, because our Lord used it and said, it is written, and he dealt with the people trying to trip him up that way, if he wasn't ashamed to use it, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who created everything, should we be ashamed to quote scripture to people because it's mocked in our society? No, I don't think we should be. And we should not only not be ashamed, we should be, just as the Lord Jesus Christ was, confident that it's going to work. It will have an effect on the devil. We've got to know that. It's tried. It's true. It's gold. It will work. It's got a two-edged sword. Two-edged, finely honed by the Spirit of God. It'll work for us. And we have to know the Word said that. Otherwise, when the devil attacks us, if you don't know the word, you've got no sword. Listen to this. I thought this is interesting. Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, the Sadducees, they come to Jesus and they're asking him about this woman that had married seven brothers because each one died and they all kept marrying the brother. And they ask him, all right, so in the afterlife, whose wife will she be? And this is interesting what his answer was to them. He says, you're deceived. Why? He says, because you know not the Scriptures, nor the power of God. And he's saying that to these guys. That was their business to know the Scriptures. Can you imagine that? But they're raising this question to him. He says, you are led astray. You're deceived. Why? Because you know not the Scriptures. And do we want to be deceived? I don't. So that's my whole point. We need to know the Word. Those guys could quote those scriptures left and right, but they didn't really know them. They hadn't sought the Lord for understanding. They hadn't let him open their ear. And Jesus told them, therefore, you are deceived. So I'm saying, do you know the scriptures? Someone came to you for help? I need you to help me out here, brother. You've been in this church a while. Is there any way you can help me? Would you be able to take them to the Bible and show them the answer? Or would you have to say... Well, I mean, I know it's in there somewhere. God helps those that help themselves. I'm not sure where. But I, I just don't remember the verse. I'm sorry, I can't help you. You really can't help them if you tell them that. But here's what I'm saying. We should be soaked, soaked in the Scriptures. And then the Spirit can bring it to your mind. That's what He's in us for. We get in this word, we know this word, and we get in a situation and he'll bring it right there and there it is to minister to someone else or to minister to ourselves or to minister to somebody in our family. It'll be right there for us. And when we know the word though, then we've got to use it. We've got to fight. Remember, we've got to take the offensive, not just take this defensive posture. You know, a lot of people in there, I know a lot of the 30-year-olds read Bevington. Right, Lane, a bunch of you did. Bevington, Remarkable Miracles. And let me just say, if you've never read Bevington, you need to read Bevington. It's a really edifying book. And in that book, though, he talks a lot. He constantly talks about his warfare with Satan and how the devil will come and attack him. And he's got a lot of good insights on how the devil comes and speaks to you and tries to talk you out of your faith. But you know one thing about him? You know what he did? You know how he fought back? He always was quoting scriptures. And so Bevington said this in his book. He said, God wants us to get to the place where we will believe the promise in Exodus 15, 26. And it could have been any promise. This is what he said here. I am the Lord that healeth thee. And Bevington writes, he wants us to take a firm stand against Satan's bold attacks. 
a stand for our blood-bought rights. He said this, I have often fought Satan face to face on this line. And he says, you will produce no effect at arm's length, for he is too great a swordsman to tackle him that way anyway. What's he saying there? He's saying we have got to get hold of God's word and take our stand and fight. And quote that verse back. I am the Lord to heal it. That's who I'm trusting, devil. Face to face and not back down. Stick him with that promise until he flees. Because he says the devil's a swordsman. You don't stick him, he will stick you and me. But listen, like we said, he is no match for the word of God spoken in faith. We've seen that. We see that in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. So when doubt assails our mind, we need to pierce those doubts with the Word of God. Not reason with them, argue with them, or think about them. But we need to use the sword. It is written. That's our weapon. If you reason and argue and debate, he'll take you down. He's better at all that than any of us are. It's got to be, it is written. So you need wisdom? Uh, I mean, I need that all the time. And take a promise. If any of you, James 1, any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally and he upbraids not, isn't going to get on your case. And he positively says, it shall be given him. So you need wisdom in a business dealing coming up and talking to somebody. Pray that prayer. Let him ask of God. He says he gives liberally. It won't get on you for asking. And he says, it shall be given him. And so when the devil comes and say, well, man, you need to call up so-and-so and get their wisdom. Or you need to find something. You know, all you have to say is make that your sword. He said he'll give it to me. That's a positive promise. He says he'll give it to me liberally. Take that. Make it your sword and stand on that. And then watch God be faithful to you. He is faithful to that. Right? That's how you deal with doubts that way. Or you need healing. Oh, this works in my family all the time. Mark 16, 18. These signs shall follow them that believe. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. You lay hands on that little head in the name of Jesus. I ask, thank you, Lord, that my child is healed. And it doesn't change right away. And the devil's like, they're not going to be healed. Well, you've got a sword in your hand. Mark 16, 18. I'll say, no, it says they shall recover. God promises me that they will recover. They're healed. Don't reason about it. Don't look at their symptoms. Don't get on the internet. They shall recover. It is written. For you're struggling about forgiveness. Oh, man, the sin I did was so big. Then go into 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And here comes the devil. Well, you don't feel forgiven. You're just so unworthy. Take that verse. It doesn't say anything about how I feel, how worthy I am. It says that he is faithful and just to forgive me if I confess my sin. And I've done that. So stick him with that. And eventually he'll leave you alone. But you can't reason about it. You can't look at your feelings. You can't argue, man, I, I really am unworthy. That's not the way you deal with things. You've got to get that sword out. Or the old question comes, are you sure you're saved? you got to memorize some verses. Take a little time. Have a sword ready, like John 5, 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has 
not going to get it, has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Or you say, man, I'm not sure if Jesus will receive me. I'm not sure if I'm one of the elect. Then know John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Get thee hence. It is written. He won't cast me out. And if you've got a besetting sin, you need to memorize verses that deal with that sin. And then you have something to fight with. So God's provided us with his word, hasn't he? Amen. And he's provided us with the indwelling spirit that we can understand it as we read it. He'll plant that word in our heart and our mind, and then he'll instruct us on how to apply that word and how to use it as the occasion demands. But we have got to meet our responsibility, don't we? And do what Paul commands. You know what he says? Take up the sword of the spirit. God's not going to take it up for us. We've got to take it up. Take it up. That is the command. Pick it up and fight. It's not an option. And the question is, will we be obedient to that? Will we take up our sword? Will we soak ourselves in the scripture so that when the need arises, we'll be able to say like our Lord, it is written. So let me just finish by saying we live in troubled times. And the days are evil. And I'm saying the only way that we're going to survive is to know the word of God and to go on the offensive against the powers of darkness. And so we have to take up our sword. And not just take up the sword. What have we been talking about now? This is the last piece of armor. We don't just take up the sword, but we must take unto ourselves the whole armor of God that we may be able to withstand in these evil days. And I say, let's do it all for the praise and glory of our God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. And Heavenly Father, we just are so grateful for this revelation, this 66 books, this word of God that you've given us, this sword of the Spirit that we can use to attack and confront and slay our enemy, Lord, and so that we're not slain. And I also thank you, Lord, for the baptism of the Holy Spirit you've given us, that we're empowered and that we can speak that word through the power of your Holy Spirit and know that it'll be effective and know that it'll work and know that our sword is sharp on its edges and it will be effective. I just ask, Lord, that everyone here that names the name of Christ will just have a hunger for your word, Lord, and will set aside other things in our day, set aside movies, set aside Internet, set aside things that are not eternal, so that we can know your word better, so that we won't be deceived, so that we can pull out that sword and be effective in these last days. And I just ask that you'll do that for all of us here, Lord. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. your majesty gave up everything for me suffered at the hands of those you had created you took all my guilt and shame when you died and rose again 
Now today you reign in heaven and earth exalted. I really want to worship you, my Lord. You have won my heart and I am yours forever and ever. I will love you. You are the only one who died for me, gave your life to set me free. So I lift my voice to you in adoration. You laid aside your majesty and gave up everything for me. Suffered at the hands of those you had created. You took all my guilt and shame when you died and rose again. Now today you reign in heaven and earth exalted. I really want to worship you, my Lord. You have won my heart and I am yours. Forever and ever, I will love you. You are the only one who died for me, gave your life to set me free. So I lift my voice to you in adoration. I really want to worship you, my Lord. You have won my heart and I am yours. Forever and ever, I will love you. You are the only one who died for me, gave your life to set me free. So I lift my voice to you in adoration. You are the only one who died for me, gave your life to set me free. So I lift my voice to you in adoration. And so I lift my voice to you in adoration.